episode five of Pint Size Reptile Podcast. How's it going, Travis and Jason? Going well. Yeah, so we're finally here. Today's been crazy. I'm, I'm finally at the house. I, I had to go take a test this morning, and they're like, yeah, let's go do some stuff. And then do some stuff was 45 minutes away from the house, and then it ended up taking way longer than we expected. So we're back here now, and now we can do this episode. Uh, but Travis got to go somewhere today. Yep. And he got stuff that I want. <laughs> got stuff you probably don't want too. <laughs> That's probably true. What all? So you went to a show today. What all did you get? Uh, so I got a four foot neodesha cage. Yeah, but that was like a weird one. You got the four foot with like doors. I yeah, I got one of the rectangular ones, not one of the slope back ones. So yeah, those are all. The, I, I don't think I've ever seen the rectangular ones. I've, I've always seen the slope back ones. We had those at the zoo I worked at. Yeah, they're they're not all that common, but you know, uh, I saw it and I thought that it would be better for Amber for her tandem bar because it's a little taller and being able to swing individual doors rather than having the whole thing open yeah. means that she can open the side that the snake is not on and not have to worry about it jumping out at her like a missile out of hell. What well, scrub pythons would never do that. <laughs> Yo, no, not at all. They're super calm. Um, and then. I picked up another pair of Calabars. Fuck you. What? Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> and I got... These brutes. What is that? This is Scaphiophis albopictus. Come on, man. You know I don't know what the hell that is. It's a Peter's hook-nose snake. So weird-ass African colubrid. I've never heard of that. Weird-ass African colubrid. Yeah, that's right in your wheelhouse. Yes, it is. Did you get a pair of them? I got a 1.3. Oh, damn. You were like, let's go all the way in on this thing. Yeah. Well, I figured they'd take a little bit more to establish, so. That is an interesting snake. But yeah, they're they're very strange-looking snakes. Is that full-grown? Yeah, this is an adult female. So that's, what, about five or four and a half, five foot? Yeah. I mean, I'd say that they're probably, to an extent, they're like an African bull snake. I'd say they're kind of they're like a bull snake. They are thick. Yes, but then also like uh, a mad hog or something. Uh, so is it a very, rear, rear fang? They're not rear fanged, but they're uh, they're crepuscular and they're fossorial. So they've got you know this blunt shield nose face for digging around oh, underground fit, and stuff. They fit right in with the kind of stuff I like, things that live underground. And it's, I don't know if you can. So really it's more like a Louisiana pine snake. really oh, bizarre short up jaw. Nose. Like their jaw ends pretty much right behind the eye. And it's like their nose is like an overbite. Yeah. That is, hold on, I'm going to make it a big, not, not, people hearing this can't actually see it, but screw it, we can see it. Yeah, maybe I might possibly, <laughs> if I can figure out the buttons here. Yeah, that's a, that's a fucked up face. They look like a burrow. Yeah, they're they're burrows. Over though, that's cool. So, huh? Have you ever seen some of San the sandboas when they get older? Sometimes we'll get a nose like that. I haven't noticed. I know that. Well, I know uh, the Saharans would tend to have a little weird face. Yeah, they've got that little bump on the nose, and then I've seen a couple of uh, people post older ones that seem to just have that look to them. I don't know what oh, no. causes it, but. So anybody listening, Jason may uh, go in and out today, but uh, we'll make this work. 
Am I cutting in and out? Yeah, but it's fine. We'll make it work. Technology has never been my friend. Ever since I've done started podcasts, it's hated me. <laughs> so that was my adventures for today. Yeah, you got a good deal on those uh, Calabars. But now that you have another pair, I'm expecting babies soon. Come on. Get, hey, some, get some babies going. They'll breed when they breed, and they'll just have to deal with it. So that could be never. Got it. Okay. That's a, that's another one we're going to have here on this episode, on this podcast at some point. But I don't know who the hell we'd have on because I don't know if there's anybody else in the country really working with Calabars. No, I mean, I know I know one other person that picked up a pair or, or a trio around the time I picked up my first pair. But I don't know that they've done anything. In fact, I haven't even heard anything about them from that person. So You got to figure out the trick with them, man. Because the only babies I've seen are ones that came in from a female that was pregnant. Yeah, that's usually what they're doing. I mean, I know that there are a couple of people who get them to breed, um, but it usually just seems to be like, oh, hey, I opened the cage and the female had eggs. There's probably like some person in like Germany or Denmark that has done it. Oh, yeah, there, there seem to be some people over in the EU that managed to do it. Um, you know, basically, from what I've gathered, though, it's... You know, it's kind of the you know the Chuck Poland approach of just leave them the hell alone, and then it happens. Yeah, <laughs> let them let them do their thing and leave them the hell alone. And you know, that's kind of easy to do with them because they're real nice and secretive. And so, as long as your definition of leave them alone is, I open the cage and I put a little cup on one side with the fuzzy rats, and then I put another cup on the other side with the fuzzy rats, and then I put a third cup with the fuzzy rats in, and then I come back in a couple of hours and see if the fuzzy rats are gone. And I know that they've eaten. So <laughs> That does work. Uh, yeah. I don't, I was going to ask uh, Jason, have you taken your rubbers out yet? Or Travis, have y'all taken your rubbers out yet? Nope. I will probably pull the male out in a week or two. And then I'll give the females another couple, two, three weeks before I pull them. Cause I, the males tend to come out before the females. I finally checked on mine two nights ago for the first time in, like a month they're alive and they're they finally quit moving and there's ice inside their box but they seem to be doing well i'm probably going to pull my males out at the beginning of march and then wait till mid to late march on the females i put them in a little later this year than i normally do yeah i was thinking of doing that somewhere around beginning of march so weird little snakes just seeing how everybody else is doing them and eventually we'll breed those too like in 30 years when they're finally big enough because they only eat like twice a year for me. I think that's what they do for everybody. <laughs> Fucking weird ass snakes. Uh, oh, before we get into this, uh, email listening, please. I'm ready this year, hopefully. Yeah. But uh, go to US Arc. Check out US Arc. Uh, they, need, they need help with all the new legislation. You've probably heard it on 5 million different podcasts and on every other uh, Facebook page. So I'm not going to drive the point home too much, but. Uh, go over there, check out what they do, write your congressperson, call your congressperson, senator, whatever, call somebody, show up, knock on their door, I don't care, but uh, make sure that you try and help out with all the legislation that they're trying to pass and hopefully don't pass. And be civil. Yes, be nice about it. Always be civil because you're going to get a lot more progress when you're a common, rational individual as opposed to a screaming, blathering idiot. Yes. Yeah, if you if uh if you want to, you can go over and listen to the Reptile Gumbo podcast episode we did where we recorded with Phil Goss at NARBC in Arlington. We talked to him for like forty five minutes. It was pretty good. 
go check out that. He can kind of give you some pointers on what to do, who to talk to, and how to do it. Uh, the best ways to go about uh, doing that whole process. So, anyways, I wanted to hit on that. So let's get into our species this week because it's not something I know anything about other than they look funny, and that that's about it. That's that's, that's as far as I go. Uh, so we are doing glass frogs this week. And I know nothing of glass frogs, but luckily we found someone who does. We brought in Zach. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced good now, but I never should have asked before we got on here. Was that good now? And I'm going to let you say your business name because I, I know I'm going to mess it up. Uh, Equatorial Ecosystems. See, I, I don't don't know why. It's the two E's that would have messed me up. It's like it's a, uh, it's a Marvel character. Use the same letter at the beginning of each word. Oh, so Zach, tell us everything about, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, tell us everything about it. <laughs> He's not kidding. <laughs> so, uh, give us a little background on you and then, uh, and then why you are working with this, this weird little frog that I only see like two or three ever at a show. I never see them in large numbers. So I'm sure there's a reason for that as well, but, uh, I only see a handful here or there. Yeah. So first off, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. And always like spreading information when I can. Um, I was telling Travis beforehand, I've been keeping herp seriously for about the last 10 or 11 years. Uh, in 2011, I was in college and I was researching how to grow uh, orchids and, and other kind of humidity needing tropical plants in a terrarium in my dorm room and stumbled across uh, Dendro Board, which was a dark frog forum back when before Facebook killed all the forums. And um realized that you could keep dart frogs that I'd read about in books since I was a kid. And so at that point, took the idea of growing the plants with the frogs and built a terrarium to, to house both. And that kind of started everything. From there, I, I grew up uh, just on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. So I was pretty close to the Audubon Institutes and the assistant curator at the zoo and one of the freshwater curators at the aquarium were both pretty heavily in the dark frogs. One I realized later was he was one of the old school, like godfathers of the whole hobby kind of took me under their wing and taught me what, what I needed to know with them. But they also exposed me to a number of more obscure kind of cool herps. Um, so that kind of started my path. And ever since then I've, I've dabbled in all kinds of things. I keep, still keep dart frogs, glass frogs, a few tree frogs here and there, um, some obscure lizards, Europlatus geckos, some felsuma, um, blood pythons, a few boas, um, and then some of the montane king snakes. Which king snakes would that be? Like, uh, I've got a group of Zanata um, agalma, the, the Baja California Kings and also some Greerai, which are the, uh, it's one of the Mexican species. I'm not sure what the common name is for them. Yeah. That's, that's all Travis scientific names. He's all over that. I mean, some of them I'm all over. <laughs> Usually I go to Lord Google for a lot of that stuff too. <laughs> Love Google. So, and I, I also, you know, then find out that I mispronounce the ever loving hell out of things and sound like an idiot. That's the entire hobby. I don't, there's so many things that at this point, I don't know who's right on any of it. Like, I'm not 100% sure how you're supposed to pronounce the species for common boa. 
because I hear Imperator, Imperador, and any other combination of that. And so uh, I just call them red tail boas and piss off everybody because I refuse to call them common boas on a regular basis. But that's me. I love making people angry. <laughs> Especially when it comes to taxonomy. Made up names. But we talked about, yeah. like, talking about the forums. When In the forum days, it was always true red tails and then red tails. And then at some point, someone decided we couldn't do that anymore. And, and I wasn't in on that meeting. And, and the boas <laughs> I like are no longer red tails. I somehow missed that meeting. But back to the frogs. So dark frog, so dark frog people in general, or frog people in general, I find very interesting. Because like you said, you start with plants. You, I always say that frog people, as far as the, the reptile or the herp hobby goes, are the saltwater people of our hobby. Because y'all will have this huge setup, spend all this money on a setup and soil and plants and all this for a frog you may never see. Like, you know it's there, but that's it. And so I find it very fascinating because then the other end of our hobby is is very minimalistic, when, especially when we get to like snakes, you know, and I'm, I do it and I'm not going to say I'm guilty. I, I do it, but you know, I keep them in a drawer. They, they live in a drawer and I take them out of the drawer and that's what I do with them, but it doesn't work for frogs. So why, why do you think that, is it because frog people like the way it looked first or that was the only way to really keep them properly and keep them alive? Well, I think the the frog hobby, especially dark frogs, a lot of the people who kind of the, the first generation froggers all started from a, a an institution background, whether they came from a, a university or a zoo or a botanic gardens, the vast majority of, of dark froggers kind of came from that that set of thinking. So they had that exhibit mindset in the back of their mind anyway you can do them um somewhat minimalistically you know they as long as you're able to maintain the humidity provide some cover and and a place to deposit eggs or or you know what have you you can do them pretty simply uh, but i think a lot of it is the the first people did it and so they passed down that knowledge to the the subsequent generations of keepers and also i from my mindset What's the point of keeping, you know, these beautiful frogs in a stark, you know, nothing habitat when you have the ability to, to deck it out and, and really do something cool with it and create a, a ecosystem within a glass box in your home? I mean, that's what it served when it was when I was first starting and I was in the dorm room. You know, it's white cinder block walls and plywood closets. And then I can take this you know 20 gallon aquarium and it can be the the little splash of of life in an otherwise sterile environment. So I think there's a draw for that. And you see a lot of people that live in big cities, especially in the, the kind of tech hubs that, that are that gravitate towards keeping dark frogs or if nothing else, having a, a terrarium of plants because they're able to kind of interact with their form of nature because they don't can't necessarily step outside and enjoy the same nature that somebody who lives in the country or, or you know, a suburb could. That makes sense. I, I wanted that's you know why we why we're focusing on the nature of this podcast is because those smaller things, like you said, they're good for people who live in urban settings and stuff, um, and also they're good for people that want to be able to have that real nice piece of nature 
inside with them because you know right you can't do that with a retic i mean you just right. can't <laughs> you could right. if you don't want to have an entire room of your house useful other than as a retic cage i mean would i like to have a giant room that was a full-on tropical paradise sure i would would i put something other than a retic in there you bet your ass yes. i would you know it would be uh it would be a lot like atlanta botanical gardens where i mean they've got so many different species of darts that just roam the conservatories and Mm -hmm. it's great fun. You know, you can be sitting in there and you'll hear something blaring away and you're looking around and then like you look down and next to you, there's just this little teeny tiny thumbnail sized frog. That's just screaming up a chorus, having a great old time. I'd love to have a room full of just set up like a jungle and have red foot scrawling across the floor and emeralds hanging up in the tree and, frogs hopping around and then just go sit in there. Mata and a water feature. Be awesome. Yeah, you know, we all can't have that, but we can all have a nice, you know, 18, 18, 18 or 24, 24, 24 or something. Exactly. Because that's what these nice small species are good for. (laughs) So let's get to the glass frog because a lot of people do dart frogs. Like I said, I don't see glass frogs as often. Every time I see them, I'm I'm very fascinated just because I think everybody is. They're one of those frogs that when someone sees sees them kind of they, they just they're uh they're a weird thing i mean you can see straight through them this is the name so you can see the stomach and everything it's a it's an interesting frog where are they from where what range are we talking i guess i mean i, mean, I guess so, there's several species but so yeah there are there's several hundred species of, of glass frogs they're all in the family uh, central in a day and they range essentially from mexico to the north throughout central america in the South America, uh, as far south as they, they range slightly into Argentina and Bolivia, the the largest kind of hub of diversity are the, the Andean South American countries, so Ecuador, Peru, and Colombia. I think as of the middle 2000s, that was the, the latest information I could find, Colombia was the most species-rich country of those three, but you've got Costa Rica, Panama, and then Ecuador, Peru, Colombia have pretty large um, amount of diversity in, in glass frog species. And a lot of species that are native to northern South America also have large ranges up into Costa Rica, Panama, and Nicaragua. Um, some of the reason why you don't see so many of them are where dark frogs have been kept in the private sector for you know the last close to 30 years, probably glass frogs really haven't been available in any kind of quantity much earlier than the mid 2010s. Uh, ABG had uh, a number when back when ABG had the, the, the rescue Panama frog program uh, that where they were getting wild caught Panamanian species in, and they had the frog pods set up as a kind of a sterile area to, with the idea to produce frogs for reintroductions once they figured out chytrid, they bred a number of species of glass frog there and one or two were able to be surplused into the hobby. So you saw some of uh, the, the scientific name is Hyalinobatrachium valerioi. It's, it's a Costa Rican species. It ranges into Panama too. Uh, and the, the common name is reticulated glass frog. There was a, Black Jungle Terrarium Supply was an old school company that, that got a few of those in then. 
in the probably late 2000s, early 2010s, but they didn't, there weren't a lot of them. They didn't last that long. And so it wasn't until 2012, 2014 or so when uh, Brian Kubicki at the Costa Rican Amphibian Research Center was actually breeding these, sent them up to a company in Canada that does some biocommerce work, uh, understory enterprises, who then bred them in Canada and then exported some to the U.S. And that's when they kind of started hitting the mainstream hobby. And the cool thing about that whole deal is Brian bred them in Costa Rica. You Costa Rican law requires you to breed them to something like F3 before they can be exported. He sent some to Mark Pepper at Understory. Understory bred them and then sold them to the hobby. But it was 25 to 50% of all sales actually went back to Brian to fund his work in Costa Rica. So we like to talk about how you know keeping things in captivity funds conservation. Another thing that the kind of frog hobby has really been at the forefront of is this whole conservation through biocommerce, where there are select companies that are able to export truly, you know, farm bred animals out of country of origin and the money that the hobby spends on acquiring these, you know, to keep in a box actually goes back into conservation in the form of land acquisition or additional research or, um, you know, the, the funding of these farms to put in the produce other species. That's cool. The, cause I mean, you hear a lot in the hobby, people will talk about keeping things for, to try and help the wild animals. But obviously for most of the hobby, we're not helping the wild. We're, we're breeding stuff. And I guess the only way we're really helping is we're expanding people's knowledge on things that do exist in the wild. But this is a case where by expanding that knowledge and having them in the pet trade is actually helping something in the wild. Right. Uh, and be- a lot of the frogs, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I, the, a lot of the frogs in the kind of the, the small glass frog, tree frog, dart frog hobby were introduced by uh, a very small number of, of, of organizations that are doing this. Uh, Costa Rica is closed to wild caught exports. So anything Costa Rican that's come in in the last you know, 10 to 15 years, as far as frog wise, has been produced through one of these biocommerce companies. Uh, Colombia and Ecuador are the same way. They've been closed for a lot longer. And so a lot of the uh, higher end dart frogs that are coming in from those countries too are also all through essentially sustainable biocommerce. So they're they're really putting the conservation money where the their mouth is. So these biocommerce things, are is that as... Is that a supported thing in these countries where they've shut down exporting to try and help their native populations in general so they can try to cut down on smuggling? Because like, I assume they they know these things are going to make it here anyways. Or is there an active effort to try and get them to breed captive populations in those areas for exporting so that there isn't a need to go collect them out of the wild for that? Uh, that's kind of the, the, the people who start these companies. That's kind of their reasoning behind it. Or – this company is a a wing of something else. So in Ecuador or even in coast, let's say Costa Rica, because that's glass frog related. Uh, Brian Kubicki has this reserve and he has, I think several properties now across the country that conserve different, different types of habitat, you know, some montane, some lowland. And he has a, some sort of a lab facility at one of them where he has animals that he's, 
captive produced to the whatever the the Costa Rican authorities say you have to produce them to. And he essentially sends them off with this agreement that whatever the, you know, for a long time, it was Mark Pepper at Understory. You know, whatever Mark sells them to U.S. or Canadian or European hobbyists for some percentage had to come back to to fund that at uh, Wikiri, which is the Ecuadorian version. It's actually a branch of the guy who who runs Wikiri is is a is a a, a PhD there who used to work at uh, the the Catholic University in I think Quito. And he was doing dark frog research and dark frog conservation. So he has a conservation arm of this organization that's, that does habitat conservation, but also captive reproduction of extremely rare species like Adelopus toads that aren't, have, have historically not been well reproduced in captivity. He's developing methods to reproduce those. And then on the side, he has some commercially viable species that he can send to the U.S. or to Europe where people will pay money and he helps fund his conservation and research by selling these frogs, which in turn also reduces the, the drive for wild caught animals and, and which would be, they would be smuggled in illegal because I don't think Ecuador has been uh, open to wild caught exports since the early nineties, if not earlier. Yeah, that, it doesn't happen enough. The, the one thing I can always relate that to is the the one huge success story in the U.S. would be like the alligators, right? right. Alligators are almost extinct, but then we had all these alligator farms, and the, and the idea was, all right, you can farm these alligators and go collect eggs out of the wild, but a percentage of them have to go back into the wild for you to be able to sell them. And now we have alligator hunting seasons in several states because we were so good at saving that species based off of that method. I wish more endangered animals that are are either pet trade or food or whatever are seen and, and done like that because that uh, to me is one of the most uh positive ways we've ever done conservation uh because yeah it's funny you mentioned alligators uh, for my first four years outside of school i worked in the louisiana's alligator program as one of their biologists and my big boss at the time he's since retired but he said you know if you really want to conserve a species what you need to do to get the public to care is put some kind of monetary value on it yeah. because they, you know, alligator in the height of pre-farming wild alligator skins were worth a, a ton of money. And then, you know, once farming happened and, and the show swamp people that drove meat prices and, and other alligator kind of other pieces, not related to their hide, all of that value went up. And, and people wanted to conserve them. But if there was never a value for their hides or their meat, they're just these scary, scaly, nasty swamp critters that, that, you know, serve no purpose to the general public. Well, and it's, it's so weird, especially, so you're in Louisiana. I just moved from Louisiana. And so anybody living there now would, would never realize how close we were to not having any alligators because now right. if there's a body of water in Louisiana, it, there's an alligator in it. It could be a ditch. It could be anything. They're there. Um, and so I just, I wish more conservation efforts would look at that and go, maybe we can model something after that, uh, in mm-hmm. some way. And that's hard. Cause obviously we're not eating it. We're not eating glass frogs. So like, there's no, there's no trade for glass frog skin and glass frog meat, but there may be some way of, all right, if you want to be able to sell them, you got to be able to produce enough to try and help put back. Now you mentioned Kittred earlier is, has Kittred, I haven't really paid attention. Has that gotten to South America and to their amphibian population? I know they have found it in parts of North America, but I didn't know how much it is affecting South American populations. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, Kittred is – so I think one of the first places where they identified Kittred was in Panama, uh, a researcher who uh, – she used to be at Tulane, and I'm not sure where she is now, but she was actually doing her – either her PhD work or her postdoc work and on Adelopus zateki and Adelopus varius, which are two uh, of the kind of stream toad species. And when she was down there, she just – I mean, you would you just walk the streams and there'd be bodies of these golden toads oh. that, that had been ravaged by Kittred. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's hit Panama and, and Central America pretty hard. A lot of those species um, have really been affected and then down into Ecuador and, and Colombia, Peru as well. Uh, that's kind of the extent of what I know, because that's the kind of the dark frog areas. Um, and I know it from a. a you know, dark frog, hobby frog perspective. Um, but yeah, it's definitely had an effect down there and has caused pretty large declines in a lot of species. I guess they're very careful about reintroducing anything down there because of that. You have to be super careful that you don't reintroduce animals carrying chytrid back into the wild also. Right. All right. So on the glass frog, let's go with uh, some of the just their their natural behavior. We, we've kind of got an idea where they live. Uh, they are more of a tree frog, right? They're not so much a ground dweller like a dart frog. They are, they are going to hang out on leaves and stuff. So, yeah, I like to describe glass frogs as kind of the, and this is from a husbandry behavior perspective. It's not from a taxonomy perspective. They're kind of a mix between uh, some of the smaller dart frogs and some of the smaller tree frogs. They're similar to tree frogs in that they're primarily nocturnal, uh, they lay large clutches of eggs. They like to roost on, on uh, depending on the species, either the tops or the bottoms of real smooth, large leaf vegetation. But then they're also like dart frogs in that they don't eat large food. Um, they don't necessarily need a rain chamber or large bodies of water to reproduce them. Their tadpoles take a, a significant amount of time to emerge from the water. Um, so they're, they're kind of in between those two in terms of care and it's just natural. I don't know of anyone who keeps glass frogs that has not, or does not keep dark frogs. Dark frogs are kind of the, the gateway the, drug, the, the gateway drug. And then, and then you, you end up with glass frogs either because that's where you were introduced to them by, or it's just kind of a perfect companion because the husbandry is very similar outside of you're taking care of dark frogs during the day. You're, you would be observing the glass frogs at night. So I'm assuming you said that you're eating small stuff. So that means they're going to be a fruit fly, eat, fruit fly eater as well, right? So depending on the species, the smaller ones will, will, will do fine with a staple of fruit flies. The larger ones will take pinhead crickets and, and actually need pinhead crickets or bean beetles to sustain even the small ones could sustain on pinhead crickets if you had a source for pinheads and didn't want to culture fruit flies or bean beetles. Um, but yeah, the, the, and really the smaller fruit flies. So there's two main fruit flies that are maintained in, in hobby as feeders. And that's the, the Melanogaster, which are the, the smaller ones. And then the Hydei, which are a good bit larger and, and have some quirks to them. You really need to feed even the smaller glass frogs, the Hydei, because the, the, the melanogaster are just pretty small to sustain them. Gotcha. Yeah. I hate fruit flies. That's, that's the reason I own 
no dart frogs right now. Although I, I, I do have a dart frog person close to me who said they would take care of the fruit fly problem for me. So I may end up getting dart frogs if they culture fruit flies for me and take that, that headache out of the, out of the equation. Um, or you could just pick up one cup of them at every bloody herp show that you go to <laughs> and that's true. use that to feed off in the interim times. That's true. I just, I have, I'm telling you, I, I did fruit flies and genetics in college and it's left a, it, it scarred me for life. I, I never wanted to see those damn things again. And so I hate the fact that I'd have to keep them alive. Just keeping them alive is the part. I killed so many fruit flies. You have no idea. So many fruit flies died because of me during my genetics class in college. So if you cultured bean beetles and then just picked up fruit flies here and there, you could keep any of the larger species of darts. Yeah. Bean beetles are fun. They take zero effort to breed. Yeah. I'm all for zero effort. That's, that's, that's me. That's, that's my, uh, that's my reptile keeping abilities. Zero effort is what I'm aiming for. Yeah, the, the bean beetles would definitely qualify there. Um, spider beetles. I have also been told are supposed to be like, you, you put them in a, a tub, you put a little bit of dog food in with them, and then you basically just forget them. And then you come back, and there's a million of the little bastards. Sold. I can do that. I'm, never, I'm not familiar with those. They're, uh, they're a strange little bug. Um, they, no, i got to look it up. While they're a beetle, they can't fly. And their antenna are really long and thin, and they hold them out weird so that when they're walking along, they actually look like a spider. They look like a fucking mite. <laughs> that is horrifying. But they're cool. <laughs> As someone who is currently suffering through mites, I don't want that in my house. I can't. That would that would send me into like panic every time I opened up. It would take me a split second to go, "Oh yeah, these aren't mites." It is a weird little beetle. It's got a big old ass, though. If you may, if you may listen. Look up spider beetle. It's got a big old. If you like beetles with a big old ass, it's got a big ass. They, they look like little walking amber gemstones. Yeah, you're, you're trying to make it sound nice. They look like mites. <laughs> okay, fine. They look like <laughs> <laughs> so, so glass frogs. I know. So Jason's having issues with his internet, but he texted me. He wanted to know if you could cohab glass frogs with terrestrial dart frogs, like in a big enough tank, or are they? Is that like a no-no? So, there are people that the, the dart frog hobby or the the. Yeah, we'll just call it the dark frog hobby. People who keep dark frogs and similar frogs to that are vehemently against mixing species and largely for good reason. A lot of the dark frogs don't play nice together. Even if they're from the same area, there's aggression issues and, and those kinds of things. But if you were to mix dark frogs with something, this is the kind of the perfect animal to do it because you're not dealing with mixing you know a cricket feeder with a with a fruit fly feeder you're not dealing with an animal that you know the glass frogs are strictly nocturnal the dart frogs are strictly diurnal so i keep my glass frogs with dart frogs from the same region and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know a, a ground dwelling dart frog and and a glass frog i keep I have a large, what I call a Costa Rican themed enclosure. It's 30 inches tall, 30 inches wide and, and 20 inches deep. And I keep Ufaga granulifera, which is the granular dart frog. And that's a more arboreal kind of smaller species with uh, Hyalina batrachium valerioi, which is the reticulated glass frog. And they're both breeding 
all at the same time. The glass frogs lay eggs on the underside of the leaves. The dark frogs lay it in the leaf litter or on the upper side of the leaves. They move their tadpoles to water reservoirs, bromeliads or film canisters. The glass frogs, I let the eggs drip off into a cup and, and pull them and move them into an aquarium to raise. And everything is, you know, the frogs are all fat and happy and there's very minimal interaction because when the dark frogs are up and moving, the glass frogs just look like part of the leaf. And then the dark frogs are asleep when the glass frogs get going. So if you, if you have a large enough setup and you create visual barriers and, and the tank is well-planned, glass frogs are a very good companion with dark frogs. I wouldn't put the species together in a 12 by 12 by 18 or, you know, the 20 gallon conversion or anything like that. But if you've got a large tank, there's no reason why it wouldn't work. Could they you're, go you're playing to the nature of both species. It's, you know, it's, yes. they're not just, you know, like you said, it doesn't have to be a fully terrestrial dart to go with the fully arboreal glass frog because you've got, I mean, you do have that possibility for niche separation, but the whole day and night niche separation, like they're basically not competing with each other in any capacity when you right. set it up this way properly because you know, they're, they're active at completely different times. They're utilizing different parts of the environment. So there is no direct competition. The closest you'd have there is just with food. And since you are the supplier of that, you have full control over that. So there should not be any competition there because there should be sufficient for everybody. Right, right. And I do feed, I'll feed the dark frogs during the day with dusted fruit flies. And then I'll go back or on the next night, I will feed the glass frogs and, and it's, that's mainly, there's always feeders kind of crawling around to some degree in the tank, but you want to keep maintain feeders that are supplemented. And so I make sure I feed, you know, the dark frog specific supplemented and then go back at night and feed the, the glass frogs again. Would you keep them with something like tanks, which are much bigger? Uh, I've heard for a little bit more aggressive. You you uh, you could I'd argue that the the ufaga are probably more aggressive than the tinks even though they're smaller. Um, so yeah, I don't think the only thing with keeping them with tinks is that there aren't, to my knowledge, any glass frogs in the hobby that come from the same country of origin as uh, the tinks. Um, so it's a little harder to you know you you play with novel pathogen exposure and that kind of stuff with that. Uh, but to some degree, the frogs should all be for the most part, captive bred anyway. Jason said he would like to put them with green and black erratus, which I guess would be fine. Yeah, that wouldn't, that would be kind those of are, fun. those are Costa Rican Panamanian. So, um, Valeroy, um, Hylena batrachium, Fleischmanni, uh, Pulverata or granulosa are all from those countries as well. I feel like frog people and spider people would get along. They'll only speak in scientific names all the time. Like it's two groups that would, <laughs> They would love to get like it's, it's hard. I'll look at spiders every now and then. I'm like, if you don't put a, a common name, and some of them don't even have common names. I'm like, this makes it even more confusing for me. But so most of these glass frogs don't have common names. I actually went through. I have uh, Brian Kubicki's glass frog book, and I was going through this before I started the this episode just to <laughs> look up if there were common names. And you read through it and. It says in here, I propose such and such as the common name for this species because they're they have a scientific name, but there there's never been a common name given to them. That's 
We just need to start giving them common. Now, if they do a common name, though, we need to purely either do it off of where it's located or what it looks like. I'm tired of common. I had this conversation with Casey Cannon um, this past weekend. Uh, I'm tired of common names after our people. Like, give the common name where it's located or what it looks like. Make it easy for us to figure out what it is we're all talking about. But, yeah, that's the, that's, there's so many, especially frogs. There's so many little frog species that, I mean... And some are relatively new, and some are not even in the hobby, just that we know of them. So, well, it, that would be hard though, James, because you know they're all green in the same place. There's a whole bunch of glass frogs, and so you know, <laughs> glass frog one and glass frog two and glass. Hey, frog I'll do that. Three, Let's that go with are numbers. All from fucking Costa Rica, you know. It's you know, it, 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 it gets a little bit into the redundant area. Then let's go with numbers. We'll just get, start giving them numbers. <laughs> First one, all right. The so you said the care is is very similar. So that that's I always wondered if they were maybe more uh, more fragile than dart frogs. But you say the reason that there's not as many is because they just haven't been around the hobby as long, which makes sense. Which means there's probably also not a ton of people breeding them in the hobby as much either. Um, you've had some success breeding them, right? Yeah. So there are are six species that are that have come into the hobby in the last decade or so, and so that's uh, reticulated glass frog which is the Valeroy, and those are from Costa Rica, and those came captive bred through understory enterprises, of, you know, ultimately from Brian. There is Hyalina batrachium oreogatatum, which is the uh, yellow spotted glass frog, which came in captive bred from Wikiri. Then there is uh, Cytotamia albumaculata, which is another species that came in captive bred through Wikiri. So those are the three that came in from essentially true farmed captive bred origins. And people who have gotten those have had by far the most success. There are also three other species that are still being exported out of primarily Nicaragua currently. And that's Cochranella granulosa, the granular granular glass frog, uh, Teratahila pulverata, which is the dusty glass frog, and then Hyalina batrachium fleischmanni, which is probably Fleischmann's glass frog, even though you hate those common names <laughs> named after person. people. Um, those three come in in, if you have no experience with glass frogs, those three are almost a, an automatic failure just because they're so fragile coming in as wild caught imports. They're, some have had chytrid, some come in just so dehydrated and so underfed that they fail. And then the other problem with them is that the imports that have come in are extremely male heavy because when the people who go out and catch them go to these sites, the males are always out on the leaf calling. The females typically stay under the leaf or more hidden. And so the males are more visible. So, you know, these people are getting paid a dollar per frog to go catch them. They go, they, you know, grab as many males as they can find. And that's what the shipment comes out to be. I've kept at one time all six species uh, I'm currently keeping the Oreogatatum, the Valerioi, Albumaculata, and then Pulverata. And then I have two male granulosa with a friend who has uh, a larger group that actually has females. The My experience with the captive bred ones has been what most of the hobby has been. They're virtually bulletproof from a care standpoint. If you can take care of a dart frog, you can take care of these glass frogs. With the wild-caught animals, um, I bought 10 Teratahila pulverata 
I'm down to four and I have one female. So I had a 9.1. I got one girl out of the whole group and six of them died within a month of of getting them in. They just, they come in, they're emaciated and they just, they're gone. Um, The granulosa seemed to be much more hardy. I haven't heard of as many losses on those and look those up. That's probably the the prettiest dark frog. I mean, glass frog uh, that's in the hobby, but those are extremely, extremely male heavy. And you would think because their, their ventral side is, is somewhat transparent, they'd be easier to sex, but they've been missexed. I was sold a pair a couple times and always ended up with males. Uh, a buddy of mine ended up getting, I think he has like nine and he ended up with a 7.2. And so I sent my boys off to him and he's gotten eggs from his group. The Fleischmann eye, those are by far the smallest of the of the wild caught imported ones that come in. They're a little less demanding from care. They're they're kind of the 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 most generalist from a habitat standpoint. But because they're smaller, they're just they dehydrate easier. Their reserves are a lot less, and so I I never my roommate in college had some of those, and we kept for a little while. So I took care of them because I helped him with his frogs. Um, but those are also extremely touchy, um, of the ones I've kept, I've successfully bred from eggs to froglets, the valerioi and the oreogatatum. And then I just recently got eggs, my first eggs from the albumaculata and the pulverata. Uh, so hopefully those, my albumaculata were froglets when I got them from Wakiri. So they're finally of age. And then the pulverata that I have left are finally acclimated and stable. So um, hopefully in the future, I'll be able to actually successfully reproduce them all the way through the process. Now, I had heard, and this was over a decade ago, so uh, it's entirely possible that it was the case back then or just because people were still getting used to them that the tadpoles are extremely slow to morph, which also accounts for their scarcity in the hobby. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, so they essentially, they can take up to nine months to a year in their tadpole stage. They can morph in three months if you can, if you tone it, if you hone in all of your parameters and you feed them well and you keep water good, you can get some of the species to morph in three months. My, the, the hyalinobatrachium, so the valeroy and the oreogatatum, mine take three to five months normally. Um, the others, I haven't had tadpoles of, but I know people who have gotten them in about that time too. But it's all about, you know, the temperature that you're raising them at, the amount of food you're giving them and the kind of the water quality. And it's all, you know, this one big balancing act because in habitat, these things are almost exclusively associated with moving water. So they don't need necessarily, you know, whitewater rapids, but it's, it's a constant flow in streams near typically highly vegetated areas. So you're talking about pretty well oxygenated water that stays mostly clean because it's not stagnating. And so you have to balance feeding them correctly, 
keeping your temperature right so your DO is good, and then not overdoing any of that to keep water quality good. And, and it's just, it's one, if one thing goes out of whack, it's going to either take them longer to morph or you might lose them all. And if you lose power, you know, you might have them for three months and they're growing back legs and then a hurricane comes through and you lose power and your temperature spikes and you lose all of them. So it takes a lot of dedication and consistency in the parameters to successfully raise them up just because of the sheer amount of time. I mean, even three months, that's the low end of the time it takes for them to morph and, and that's a long time. You know, that's longer than a lot of snake eggs incubate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So I got a, got a few things from, from all that, that I want to ask first, I want to go back talking size. You said, uh, one species is a little bit smaller, some are a little larger. What, what is the size range we're looking at for glass frogs in the hobby? So about the average is an inch. You've got some that are probably three quarters of an inch, some that get an inch and a half, two inches, maybe. So still, still pretty small. We're not, we're not up to like, you know, North American green tree frogs, which are much larger. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. There, I don't know of any glass frog, at least in the hobby, that's even, you know, adult tinctorious size. Really? Okay. Yeah. So this is a small frog. Got it. Um, all right. Let's talk about some of those parameters uh, as far as, as eggs go. Cause you've, you've done dart frogs, you've done glass frogs and, and you said care wise of the adults is very similar, but I'm, I'm picking up that maybe that the care wise of eggs, someone who may have bred dart frogs, uh, maybe the care wise of tadpoles and all is going to be a little different than the care of a glass frog tadpole and having to deal with that. Right. Well, I found that in terms of from a, from a tadpole perspective, they don't like temperature spikes in the water. So I've had my best success in Louisiana with raising clutches in winter time. And, and really that's getting clutches and raising clutches. And a lot of it is just due to our climate yeah. Previously, my herp room had a portable air conditioner. So I've converted our garage to a herp room. I've insulated the door. The walls are all insulated. The ceiling's insulated. And I was using a portable air condition that was okay, but not great. And so we would hit 82, 84 in August for a, for a it day. It gets a little warm in Louisiana in the summer. Yeah. So when we have those 100-degree August days, the herp room was getting – you know, low to mid eighties and nothing suffered from a health perspective, but some of the, the dark frogs and, and really most of the glass frogs kind of shut down from a reproduction standpoint. And you would think their, their reproduction is very geared towards uh, rainstorms. So you get a low pressure system come through the pressure drops, you get rain, humidity spikes, you get eggs. So, you would think with all the rain that we get in the summertime here in Louisiana, you would have good success then. In reality, a lot of our summertime storms are just driven by the energy in the heat in the day and just the natural humidity. You get spikes and it's not necessarily a front. And so I've changed my my attempts at breeding to try to get most of my eggs in the wintertime where we're getting these frequent cold fronts coming through. And so you get a pressure drop, you know, it's once a week here, even though we don't get that cold, you know, we're, we're dropping to the fifties at night, humidity spiking, pressures dropping and you get rain. And that's when I most often get eggs. I also have the best tadpole success then because the herp room wasn't getting much above 75. And so the water temperature was cooler. And then, um, so that, 
solve some of your DO issues. It solved some of your nutrient issues. And so that was in previous years, that was where my, my success lied. I installed a, a mini split system that's oversized for the room. So now I can keep it right 73, 74 in the heat of the summer. So we'll see. I, I did it at the end of summer last year. So we'll see how this season goes in terms of typically if you get low pressure systems, they should breed year round. They shouldn't yeah. necessarily be seasonal breeders. Um, so we'll see how it goes. So far, I've gotten eggs in the wintertime, but that's you know pretty normal talking about this season right now um and and tadpoles are growing but now i'm cooler so i'll probably have slower um development of the tadpoles and the froglets just because i'm looking at temperatures at 68 to 72 in the room now instead of you know 77 75 yeah so they're coming from more of a uh equatorial place so temperature temperature swings aren't really a thing where they're coming from you pretty much get steady temperature all year round Whereas in Louisiana, like you said, it's going to hit a hundred and something or 110 sometimes during the summer outside, which will just drive the inside temperature up like crazy. It's great for humidity. I mean, I'm sure all your animals are are great for humidity wise because it's a sauna outside for most of the year, which is another thing we talk about. So as you're, as you're giving these ideas of how you handle it, we've talked about before on here that you've really kind of got to adjust it to where you live because obviously where like Jason lives up in Colorado, He's not going to get the same thing that you're getting. You don't have the same humidity levels that we have in Louisiana, and you know he's he's not going to get 110 degree months out of the year. Right. Uh, so yeah my my friend who has my granulosa is in Buffalo, and he keeps everything in the basement. And it's like he said he texted me the other day because I keep a lot of lizards in screen cages, and he can't do that there because he's running you know forced heat into his room to keep it above 50. And so he's given up on trying to, to do the granulosa this winter because it's just, even if he's got them in a rain chamber, the humidity gets sucked out of everything but the most sealed up terrarium. Yeah. Yeah. Humidity, lack of humidity has never been my issue living in the South. Uh, right. That's, that's been pretty good. Um, so you talked about them, they're usually living, uh, so not so much like flowing water as much like a river, but they're getting a lot of water exchange where these tadpoles are. Like you said, oxygen, are you running uh, like air stones and tanks with the tadpoles just trying to get oxygen into the water or how do you handle that? So I have in the past and it's worked out. There have been, uh, so there's a glass frog group on Facebook and it's largely, you know, American keepers. And then there are a few people from Europe in there too. And there's a guy in Europe who's had a lot of success with a lot more species, mainly because there's a lot, they, they have access to a lot of other ones, either, you know, through the Ham show or otherwise he's been exposed to a lot more and has kept them for longer. And so he's bred a, a large number of glass frogs and he kind of steered people away from using air stones and, and, any kind of oxygenators and is just, you use, he uses decent volumes of water, gives them some leaf litter and just does some water changes every so often to maintain the quality. And he's had a lot more success doing that. And so that's kind of what I've changed to. And also what other people who have had success here as well is just, you know, keeping fresh water in there, at all times, but not necessarily going as far as adding, you know, mechanical oxygenation. 
mean, it almost sounds a little bit like treating them as if they were cold water fish species. Um, you know, instead of like a tropical fish, you know, like you can kind of get away with, with the darts, you know, if you kept them that cold water fish species where like there's a turnover of water, but it's not, like you said, not hugely mechanical, but enough to keep it kind of refreshed right. a little bit more oxygenated just by being refreshed. And that helps with that stable temperature routine. Right. And if you think about it, they're coming from, you know, they're associated with streams. So it's water that's coming from higher elevation flowing downstream. I mean, even, you know, our little streams here in Louisiana, you get in it, it's cold. And so um, it's something similar there. You know, they come from sea level. The, the vast majority of, of glass frogs come from sea level to about 800 meters up which is when you're getting 800 meters, you are cooling off some, that's kind of pre-montane. Um, but most of the, the streams are, are being fed from higher elevation. So yeah, it probably is similar to your water's cooler, which automatically makes it have a higher, you know, percentage of DO and it's moving. So it's staying clean. So yeah, taking that, that approach is, is a good idea. And then, so you have them in a larger tank. I'm assuming at some point you separate them out into the individual cups, like dart frogs do. Like you don't keep the tadpoles. No, not all. necessarily. Oh, really? They can they can, ha- they can house like tree frogs where you're keeping you know twenty or so to a to a tank. Oh, okay. And then you're not having to deal with any sort of uh, over competition between them or anything like that. No, they're largely so in the wild. They it's believed that the tadpoles scrape algae and other. Uh, you know, bacterial films and stuff off of submerged limbs or rocks. And so they're not carnivorous. Uh, I feed them strictly algae wafers and some boiled leafy greens in in their tadpole stage. So you're not dealing with cannibalism like you would in some of the dart frogs. Yeah, because I've seen dart frog people. I just can't, I can't fathom the little tiny cups with an individual froglet and having like the little tap. That just seems like way too much work for me to want to do, especially with how many babies you could have at one time having to take care of. Uh, so it makes much easier to just have them all in one tank. It seems much. Right. Uh, let's go with as far as uh, in the pet trade. So what should someone, if they're looking for uh, a glass frog and they're going to see them at a, a show or something like that, what should they look for to know that it's a healthy frog? If they, if they, what, what kind of signs are they looking for? No. Yeah. This is a good one because they're not moving so, around a ton. Right. So for someone who, I guess some of it you have to, if it's somebody who's got, you know, ample experience with dark frogs, that's, that's one side you could look at, or you could also look at it from somebody who has, you know, minimal experience with dark, you know, maybe they've kept an erratus or something for the, for the person who doesn't have a lot of experience, they really should only get captive bred animals. It's, it's just, it's a recipe for failure to not, really know what you're doing with glass frogs and try to buy wild caught. Um, with that said, there's not a lot of captive bred animals out there. And so the first thing I would ask anybody is, is it captive bred? And if not, you know, how long have you had it in captivity? Because they're coming in. If you look on any of the importers lists that are getting things from Central America right now, they're in there and, you know, it's, it's nondescript, you know, glass frogs, but, and you order from there and you, you, you know, you order 10 and you get, 
six Fleischmann I, a granulosa, and three pulverata because it's just this mixed bag. Um, so primarily the main thing that, that you want is, is captive bred animals is the key. If you get captive bred and you have any knowledge of keeping dart frogs, you should be successful with them. Um, if you start getting into wild caught, maybe you've got a little bit of, you know, you, you've bred several species of dart frog. You've got your feeders down, you've got environments set up, you've got a place to quarantine. Then, you know, maybe you venture out into something that's wild caught. Um, even then though, like I said, I bought some, I've, I've got 10 years experience keeping darts and probably six keeping different glass frogs. And I lost over 50% of the wild caught animals I got. And that was just to establish another species and try to get captive bred. Um, it's, it's, it's a numbers game and, and you're not going to succeed with the majority of the numbers if you're getting wild caught. Um, so captive bred is always better and get it from somebody who can, who can tell you, you know, how they bred it, where they got their animals from and, and, you know, trace it back to either Brian or, or Wikiri, because those are the people that are paying the money to ultimately support the conservation that they're using, you know, essentially using the animals they acquired, they're paying back in some kind of way. I guess it's a safe bet if you're at a show and it's, uh, you go to a table that has snakes and lizards and tortoises and a small section of frogs. Those are probably not going to be captive bred glass frogs. I imagine there's not a ton of people that are wholesaling the captive bred glass frogs. And so those are probably wild caught on a table like that. You're probably looking for somebody who is frog or amphibian specific, right? Right. Yeah. You, you really want somebody who, and, and, you know, maybe there is somebody who's a, like I keep a lot of different species and, and so I might have a table that's got, you know, several different things on it, but yeah, you want to see somebody who can say they produce them on their own. They know how to keep them. And, and, you know, they're telling you, they're showing you pictures of their tadpole setups and, and those kinds of things, because yeah, there's not part of, the, part of the other reason why you don't see a lot of them is because I can probably count on two hands, the number of people who have had continued success reproducing them year to year and so, you know, unless you're in a place where there's one of those people and, and you're lucky enough to be close enough to somebody who has bred them, odds are they're going to be wild caught. And of the, the species that I mentioned, the only ones that have been extensively captive bred are Valerioi, Oreogatatum, and to a lesser degree, the Albomaculata. Most of the Nicaraguan species, I think Granulosa, has been bred maybe one time in the private sector in the U.S. in the last you know ten or so years. Uh, I don't know of maybe one breeding or or none at all of the pulverata. The Fleischmann I are have been reproduced a, a couple times, and there's people that are having success with them. But that's the only one of the the three Nicaraguan wild caught species that that people are having a ton of success with at this time. That's crazy. I, I, I did not, I, I realized there had to be several species of glass frog, but the problem is the general person here is glass frog. We just see a, see a frog where we can see through its belly and just assume they're all the same thing. I've been looking through some of the pictures here. I've got to say the reticulated one is probably my favorite. Uh, I, I like the pattern, just the way it looks. I love that pattern on the back of that frog. Um, that's the, for anybody listening, that's the, let's see if I can screw up the species name, the Valeroy, Val, Valeroy, Val, I don't know. Reticulated. Yeah. And that's the, that's, 
easily one of the prettiest that are in the hobby. And it's also the, the most widely bred. So if, if you were looking for one, you know, this is a case where one of the really nice ones is probably one of the most available. Gotcha. Now, as far as people buying them, uh, if someone goes, all right, I've seen a glass frog. I want to buy a glass frog. Maybe they have never owned a, uh, a dart frog. Would it be safe though, for this to be their first kind of frog? Just like a dart frog might be their first, as long as they get the setup, right. This would be an okay first frog as far as care goes. As long as you're comfortable with feeders, again, it's no different than a, than a dart frog besides, you know, you viewing it at night, but it's not not going to see it. It's not going to be an overly active frog during the day when you're wanting to watch it. Right. It's not, not a dart frog. They're not going to come out and eat in in a group while you're feeding, you know, dumping fruit flies in there. Right. But it's room temperature, you know, essentially dart frog set up 60 plus percent humidity, lots of cover. They like, um, wide leafy leaves they, they want like a philodendron or some kind of aeroid because they do sleep under them. They need something that's going to support their weight, which isn't a lot, but they need a, a plant that will support them. A lot of times they roost together. So you might have three or four on one leaf. And that provides them cover and then, you know, get culture and fruit flies down or get culture and bean beetles down or make sure you have access to pinheads on a weekly basis. And, and if you're buying a captive bred animal, yeah, it's no, it would be no harder to keep than a, a beginner dart frog besides the fact that, you know, you don't necessarily see them as active during the day. Good. I was, I thought maybe they were a little trickier to keep, you know, you go to some of these, the shows and you see a table full of frogs and you never know which ones are, easier uh than others i mean because obviously someone coming from keeping snakes and lizards i know that a frog is gonna be trickier only based off of the parameters it requires to house that frog is trickier than it would takes to to house my uromastics or to house a sambo obviously it is just you've got to get that down right um and we talked about at the beginning uh as far as frog people go i think they have the right the right idea when it comes to housing these things there's no don't take the easy way out you know enjoy the process of a planted tank and then enjoy the idea of an animal in that tank. I'm assuming when you when you do a an animal, you've you've got your tank up for a period of time before you ever put an animal in it. Yeah, and and that's from everybody says you let it sit for a month or so. It's mainly I like to have a tank you know grown in. I don't want to have a sparse tank just because the animals will be more out. They'll be less stressed when they have the cover. So you know, I at this point. I'm, I'm growing plants that, that I, I sell to other hobbyists or whatever. So I've got a stockpile of plants that, that I'm not necessarily pulling from one tank and, and building a new one, but I still, you know, the, the plants, when you put them in day one, they're not, they haven't figured out the light and, and, and grown up the background and that kind of stuff. So it, at a minimum, you want you know, some decent cover for whatever you're keeping, as opposed to, you know, planting a bunch of cuttings in a tank and then throwing a frog in because just that sparse habitat will stress them out. How do you do water for these guys? Like, I mean, obviously it's not just a water bowl like you would do for a reptile, but I would assume. So I've kept I, the, the very first people to have success with Valeroy in the U S kept them essentially in a, a paludarium style setup. So, you know, Dark frog, I think dark frog tank, except remove the substrate, put, you know, three or so inches of water in the bottom. And, and that was how they lived. And so when the, the first person who bred them 
had that set up, everybody kind of gravitated towards, oh, they need, you know, bodies of water in the tank. Since that time, I've bred them with water in the tank. I've bred them in a rain chamber type setup. And, and a lot of the zoos and, and institutions have had their greatest success using some kind of a rain chamber setup like you would for tree frogs. And then recently, I've just started setting them up in a dark frog tank with substrate across the whole bottom, no standing water. And just when they lay eggs, allow, putting a basin in the bottom to allow the tadpoles to drop off into. To me, setting them up just like a dart frog is ideal because when you have some amount of water in the tank, unless you have, unless you're constantly draining it and refilling or having a way to monitor water quality, you're just promoting soggy substrate in the rest of the tank that you either have to figure out how to separate with water or make your substrate taller to, to get the upper layer out of the water. But you're also dealing with, you know, the water quality and everything with that. So I've gotten to where I have no water in the tank. I don't use a rain chamber. I missed like I would dart frogs during the day. I just add one or two misting cycles to the mister at night. And then I've got that's how I've gotten eggs from the four species this season that 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 I'm keeping. And you're running a miss, I'm like some sort of mist king or some sort of system on on your tanks? Yeah, I've got a Mist King uh, on a timer and I do like 30 seconds in the morning, 30 seconds in the afternoon, 30 seconds like right at dusk and then another 30 seconds deep into the night. Okay. So, okay, that's that's more than I than I thought. Jason, you're back. I am. Can you guys hear me now? We, we can hear you. Yes. Oh, I think we might have the problem solved. Oh, you're, you came Excellent. back. Excellent. We, good, you came back. You can ask any of your frog. Jason's the one that uh, was most excited because he's wanting to do glass frogs. Um, and he's got you've got dart frogs currently, right? Yeah. Oh no, he's, he froze for a second. There you are. You're back. So, ask away, Jason. Here's your chance. Well, and I'm not sure if any of this already got covered because I had to turn the uh, internet off, so I might have missed a lot. But um, essentially, I've got dart frogs. Um, I did try a glass frog and. I Oh no! It was just one that I, we ended up losing them, so I wasn't sure. I don't know really anything about these. It sounds like, from what you were saying, uh, temperature requirements and stuff are probably similar to the dart frogs if they can be housed together. Um, I did have him in with my Costa Rican green and blacks, and it's in a let's see, it's a forty-four gallon bow front that's pretty heavily planted. Um, one came from like a pet store, so it could have been an import that wasn't. Um, maybe as healthy as it should have been. But I guess what I was really looking for was to know kind of husbandry things. So when I get more, what I can do basically to assure success. So we don't have issues again. Um, go ahead. Yeah. So, so that, it sounds like that was probably a, a wild caught. Um, do you know what species it was? Oh no, you froze again, Jason. Oh no. <laughs> yes. Do you know what species it was? Um, I don't off the top of my head. It was the uh, green one with a clear belly. Yeah, I'd probably remember. <laughs> oh. If it had, if I fleshers or fleishers or something, does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. Fleischman eye. Um, yeah, that was almost for sure wild caught, and that was that's probably why it, it didn't do well. 
um, like I was saying before, those those have not done well um, for a lot of people. Even experience people experience with other glass frogs and dark frogs. Just the wild caught's come in in really rough shape, and it's hard to get them back healthy. I, I think if getting a, a captive bred animal you probably would have no trouble keeping them the same, basically the same way as you would a dark frog, you know, room temperature, moderate humidity, um, basically the same terrarium that you would a dark frog feed them. I, I like to give them at least Heidi eye with big beetles from time to time. Um, and then if you want, you know, you could do pinheads too. Okay. I culture the fruit flies. I didn't have much luck getting my dart frogs to eat the uh, bean beetles. Small isopods, um, springtails, and uh, the fruit flies is what I've been given the dart frogs. Yeah, the the bean beetles are kind of hit and miss when it comes to the dart frogs. A lot of the bigger species will take them, but they they are they do have uh, harder exoskeletons, so they they don't take to them as well as they do fruit flies. But they will eat them too. Um, so if you did that, you know maybe you only fed bean beetles at night for the glass frogs, the glass frogs will eat them and the dark frogs will pick at them. Or I don't know if you, do you culture Heidi eye at all? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people don't like them. I've, I've done glass frogs strictly on the smaller glass frogs strictly on Heidi eye before, and they do fine. There's just a lot of people that don't like to culture those for they they're escape artists and they like to learn how to fly. <laughs> So Zach, are you keeping isopods with that. yours? Yeah, I've got it basically, you know, like a dark frog. I like those Costa Rican purple isopods. I never got into the the isopod craze that a lot of dark frog people did, but the Costa Ricans are good because the adults are a moderate size. The babies are small enough that baby dark frogs will eat, and that's a good jolt of calcium for a for a young froglet. Um, and then springtails too. I I'm fortunate to have access to as much live oak leaf litter as I need. So yeah. I kind of let it dry out and let it and, and then straight into a tank. And I'm sure there's some springtails that, that end up hitchhiking on there. I'm, I'm out of frog questions. I think I've asked everything I wanted to, I was wondering about the frogs. I was very surprised that they're, they're easier to keep than, than what I assumed. I assumed just because they look like a fragile, a fragile frog. When you see them in that little cup, just stuck to the side, I'm like, oh man, it's got to be something hard to keep. <laughs> yeah, they they definitely give that appearance. But no, I'd say they're the only real thing that some people have said that make them different than darts is some claim that they're temperature sensitive. But like I said, mine get up to. 80 or in the past have gotten up to the low eighties and have done fine. The one thing, my tanks are probably much more ventilated than a lot of people's. I, you know, I use a exoterra or that, you know, that's front opening style with a partial screen lid. And I cover mine probably 50% with glass, but the ambient humidity in my room is 60 to 70%. So I don't need a ton of coverage, but that allows everything you know, it allows airflow in the tank, which allows the animals to naturally regulate their temperature through some evaporative, you know, evaporative cooling. I had it. Oh, I know what I was going to ask. 
I say that, and then I said, I can't remember what I was going to ask. It was, it, had, it was important. It was, I had it, it right there. Like, I had to take, I had to wake up this morning and take a test, and then my brain, once the test was over, I was like, I'm done thinking for the day. So another question I had, um, I know that I, oh, no, he froze. A lot when I lay their, their eggs on leaves that overhang water and things like that. So are you keeping ponds in glass frog tanks? Am I, I heard everything, but am I keeping what? Are you a keeping- pond. A pond. Like a water, like a big water source. I have in the past, but I've gone away from it. They'll actually, they lay no problem. If you miss at night and and you get a low pressure front come through and and you kind of mist heavier when you get that, they'll lay in a a dry bottom tank. What I will do though, and I guess I I forgot to mention this with the eggs, in a lot of the species, especially the, the hyalinobatracheums, they lay their eggs on the backside of leaves. And the males will, what they call, defend their eggs. And he actually tends to them every night. And so I don't actually pull the eggs like you would, you know, a dark frog that lays in a Petri dish or something. I let the eggs stay on the leaf because I've pulled eggs before and they mold over. So when the males tend to their eggs, they either urinate on them or they kind of lay on them to, to moisten them from their skin. And I think there's something in the urine or, or some kind of, you know, beneficial bacteria on the, the skin of the frog that keeps the fungus at bay until the, the eggs can hatch because I've done it both ways. Every time I pull, I end up getting some kind of molding over. And it's similar to this happens in uh, Amarega dark frogs too. If you pull Amarega eggs too soon, they mold over, but the males will continue to return back to those eggs day after day. And if you let them almost, you know, to where you've got a tadpole that's just in the gel sack, if you pull them, then you get almost 100% egg development. It's the same thing in glass frogs. I let the, the egg mass develop all the way. And then I'll just put like one of those 32 ounce deli cups underneath it and just mist the, the leaf with a fine spray and the agitation of the water droplets hitting the mass is enough to get the tadpoles to wiggle enough. They just fall right into the, the cup and then I'll just move them to a rearing tank from there. So it's almost like they have an antifungal secretion on the, on the frogs that they're rubbing across the eggs. Yeah. I don't know if it's in the male skin or they are known to actually urinate on them to, to keep the eggs moistened while they develop because the eggs take about two weeks to develop. So in a, less than humid situation you know they're just dangling on the back of a leaf so they may need extra water i don't know if there's you know something in the urine that that just has the extra benefit of keeping fungus down or you know maybe it's just an anecdote but i've had my most success letting the males do their thing on the egg mass and then just collecting tadpoles from spraying the egg mass down and letting them hatch out themselves so i, I remember what i was going to ask uh it was it was about it's really about price, basically. Uh, you see a lot with a lot of other animals that are still imported and that are captive bred. You'll see a difference in price, which kind of sometimes gives you an idea of which ones were captive bred and which ones were, were wild caught. Do you see that with the glass frogs? Do you see the imports being fairly cheap or are they about the same price as what people are getting when they captive breed some of these? No. So the the if you're buying an import from the importer, they're – you know, they're, they're what people would call, you know, unfortunately one of these throwaway species, they're $20 an animal. And and that's, I think what attracts a lot of people. So then when that goes down the line, you end up seeing them at a show or 
through underground or one of these other resellers, they're 50 to $70, uh, an animal, you know, retail, uh, from, a, a captive bread. <laughs> yeah. Captive bread Valeroy are, uh, you know, hundred, 125. So not that much more for the, for the idea that you're going to be successful much more easily with the hundred dollar animal. You're not paying all that much more, you know, when you account for the risk, the album maculata are because they're not very often bred in the U S and you're still primarily getting them from that biocommerce company. They're 200 to 250. Um, but that's about the top end one. Uh, I think the Oreo Tatums are somewhere 150, 175. That's, I, it's good. I mean, it's, it's great that they're not, you know, a $15 frogs. I mean, you see that with so many other reptiles that it's 15, 20 bucks and they, they do just, you know, they're not going to make it. Right. Uh, I'm not, I, I got to quit talking to people that have, an, that take care of animals that I had no idea I wanted until I've talked to them. Then I'm like, that seems cool. <laughs> That's always the danger with, you know, well, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got friends. I'm working that, on like, a day gig. Go ahead. Go tank design. Talking to, uh, uh, last time. Check. Yeah. 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 I've talked about Chuck last time. Well, I've got friends that, that sell frogs. They live like, like less than a half mile away from me. And they always have frogs at the shows and they have those, um, the starry night frogs or whatever. And I always see those on the table. I'm like, that's a really cool looking frog. But I'm like, I don't need that frog. Like every time I see him, like, I want that. But then the better part of my brain goes, you don't need a small frog. One, you hate fruit flies. And I just have to remind myself every time I hate fruit flies. That's how I keep myself from doing it. But my wife has a, we do have one frog. We have a, a Brazilian horn frog. But I mean, they're, it's like owning Jabba the Hut. It just sits in the mud and you just chunk food in there and it goes crazy for food. So that's, that those frogs seem way easier to me than something like, like dart frogs or glass frogs. I can treat them more like, like a lizard. Yeah. I mean, the key to these smaller ones is just discipline. If you, if you get down, if you have a routine and you yeah. get your feeders down, once you've got the, you know, the, the good thing about the enclosure is, I don't, the, the term bioactive is, I, I don't know how I feel about it, but, um, you know, you set up an enclosure that essentially takes care of itself. It cycles itself. And so you're not having to necessarily pull every, you know, waste matter, waste material there and, and things like that. It's more, you know, you're providing water, you're providing food and the, the tank, as long as you're not overcrowding it, you know, three, four of these in a 18 by 18 by 24 is, is a, is a fine size to maintain all of the, the waste processing and reduce any kind of um, stress and aggression and, and, you know, you set up your tank, you create your feeders and, and you feed on a consistent basis. And that's pretty much what there is to it. And they're not going to be like tree frogs where they're going to mess up the glass all the time. And it looks horrible because they just gooed all over the glass. Cause that's one problem I always have with tree frogs is they're great until they get on the glass and then they just shit on it and their mucus on it. Just the glass looks horrible and I have to go in and scrub it. Yeah, they will do that to some degree, but they're, you know, 10 times smaller. Yeah, so small. it's, it's yeah. Yeah. I'll see people with white tree frogs. And I'm like, Oh, it's just so much shit. It's a big old frog and it's just right up on the glass. And it's my first, thought, I was like, Oh, I got to try and scrub this glass now. Travis, 
you have any more follow yes. questions? Nope. I'm, you know. You're, you're busy with your new snakes trying to think how you can set them up. No, no. Uh, they're, they're in quarantine, right? They're set up for the time being. You know, I've just got to leave them alone and let them settle in. You don't want to shoot an unboxing video of them in your snake room? No, I, I don't do that. Next to all I'm of your other animals? Um, um, I just wanted to reflect back on what had been said in terms of, you know, the captive bred aspect versus the um, wild caught type thing. Um, you know, and Zach made a point of, you know, there's the availability and it looks good. But especially if you're just getting into this, realize that if it looks too good to be true, there's a reason for that. Um, and this is something we see kind of endemic throughout the hobby is that people buy cheap and it's less so in the frog area because, you know, as was kind of noted earlier, they're a little bit like the saltwater keepers where they spend all this money setting up a gigantic expensive cage. But we have to remember that a lot of people get in the hobby um, from the beginner side and they just see something cute and small and they want the cute and small cheap because that's where they are and they don't know better. So I just like to reemphasize that captive bread is always better because in the long run, you're getting a much healthier and more stabilized animal that you're going to have a greater chance of succeeding with. And that way you'll be more likely to stick with it and be happy in the hobby and in the community. Yeah. And you're, your cage for a frog is going to be more expensive than the frog usually, except yeah. that like you're well, not putting it's fun too. Yes. I mean, building the frog, I had a blast done uh, and they're just, they're, they're really fun. You can do unique things with them. Each one's a little different. My kids had their input on them. It was, that that's, that's a big part of the enjoyment for me with the frogs is building the tank. I figure with Travis's love of plants, he'd have tons of dart frogs. You know, there. I, I, I considered it, and when I lived in Atlanta and I had friends over at Atlanta Botanical working with the frogs, I, for a while, had quite a few uh, Azurias, but I, like you, James, I, I just got sick and tired of dealing with fruit flies, and, you know, that's when I switched over to bean beetles, but, you know, baby Azurias don't really take bean beetles, and then when I had to move, I had to give up a lot of stuff and those were among the things that went out the door and just never ended up coming back. Snake people really get spoiled by the fact that we can just have a freezer full of frozen rats at any time to feed our snakes and that we don't have to put any work into that. Now, granted, someone like Jason's raising his own rodents, which I think is nasty too. I'm, I'm never going to do that. Freaking That's rodents. way worse than the fruit flies. <laughs> Hands down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The smell for sure. Yeah, I'm cleaning every three, four days, and I've been doing that since I was 16 years old. No, I'll just order my See, I don't have to worry about that, because if I tried to do that, I just end up dead on the floor in anaphylaxis. That's and true. <laughs> so it was real easy for me to be like, you know what I'm never going to do? I'm never going to raise rats. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take my box of frozen ones that show up on the doorstep every couple months and fill up my freezer. I'm good that way. The people are always like, it's so much cheaper to raise your own rats. So you've been in the mid and really can go to pet stores and what? 
Sorry, am I cutting out again? In and out, but it's fine. We'll deal with it. Oh, I said when I first started breeding the rats that I I didn't have a lion, like the mall pet store and things like that. And so that's kind of why I started. And I just always had a, you know, a few tubs going. Yeah, I just, no one can sell me on. It's cheaper for me to raise my own rodents than it is for me to buy them when they're on sale online. Like you you can't. No one can trick me into that. There's no way you can't. My time is money, which is the same reason I don't do fruit flies because that's time. But my problem was also like, I'm sure it's much easier now. And I'm sure if I set them up, it wouldn't be the way it was in college. But I was had, we talked about mold earlier on the eggs and stuff. That was my problem with fruit flies. I would get mold in every culture I ever had to take care of within like two days, mold and everything's dead. And I was like, fuck it. I'm so tired of these damn flies. Because it's not like I needed them to feed uh, an animal that I was taking care of. I needed them for a grade and the damn things weren't like, I needed to get through my class. And so, yeah, I, I, I have a strong hatred for them, but I'm sure if I tried again now, it would probably be different, but I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's recipes now that are pretty tried and true and it's like baking cookies. Yeah. I just, I get spoiled by either like my tortoises. I just throw them some tortoise chow and some veggies. And then my snakes, I just go take stuff out of the freezer. And then the very not for you. Sorry. I was just say the very few things that we have that eat crickets now, we can just like just go to PetSmart and buy like twenty five. We're good. We've gotten it down to a very small number of things that have to eat live insects. But because uh, I used to do roaches, but I can't do those anymore because I got allergic to the roaches. Like most people that end up keeping roaches, they end up getting allergic to them because those damn things are are horrible. Yeah, I'm lucky to have uh Fluker's crickets right across the river. So priority mail gets them to me next day. So anything I need with crickets is quick and easy. Jason, you're going to ask a question. Yeah. I wanted to ask Zach if he's making his own fruit fly medium. Are you buying? Uh, one or you- no, I, I, I make my own. It's um, just a combination of, of brewer's yeast, powdered sugar and, and uh, potato flakes. That's about what I remember. I just, couldn't keep things. I don't. Uh, other thing, well, they they died every time I had to open the container in my dorm room. And it, my dorms were built in like the '60s, and they weren't the cleanest. The guys' dorms weren't great in college, and so I'm pretty sure the air alone is what was actually killing them. the stuff that I was having to breathe in on a regular basis. <laughs> was was actually killing the fruit flies because I would go over to my now wife's dorm room and do them, and I wouldn't have it happen. But it was only when I have tried to do it in my own dorms. It was freaking. They die every time. Now, how often were you just, doing laundry back then? I, my room <laughs> that was, was the problem. My room was clean because I brought girls over to it, so I had to keep it clean. But it, it's still a place where, like, that's also until so I have again. I've said I'm dealing with mites with my own collection right now. I think I'm almost done. The only other time I ever had mites was when I tried to keep a snake in the dorms. And what the weirdest thing is, they're reptile specific mites, so you would think you wouldn't get them in the middle of a dorm room, but. I, I got my snake in there. I treated them, got rid of them, got them right back again. I was like, fuck it. I'm done. I sent it back home. Never got mites again for the last 20 years until I moved to Texas. And then now I have mites. But yeah, dorms are, are a nasty place. Or at least guy dorms are a nasty place. Don't keep your animals there. But any more questions, Jason? As you freeze. You oh, know, nice. I had a whole list and now my... <laughs> Well, scatterbrain. So probably not for now. I might, uh, I might send you a message if I come up with other stuff when I'm ready to get some more. Yeah, for sure. Reach out, send me a message, send me an email. Uh, happy to help. Okay, I really appreciate that. I say I'm all 
I'm all frog questioned out. If anybody's listening that wants to, like, we talked about glass frogs a lot, but if anybody's listening and wants to know about dart frogs, you can go check out our, I think it was episode 94 on the Reptile Gumbo podcast. We talked to Audrey, who's the one that told me to contact you for glass frogs, uh, who's also the one that told me she'd help me out with with fruit flies, which I'm, I may hit her up for at some point if I decide I actually want to do a dart frog. But it's still fruit. Uh, I, I, I got to talk myself. I got to hype myself up that I really want the frog and I'd be willing to do the, the fruit flies. But I know like frog people out there going, it's not that bad. I'm like, fuck you. I killed a lot of them. I, I don't want to kill more. Yeah, I make 10 cultures a week and it takes me, you know, maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm sure it wouldn't take me long to do. But the problem is, again, snakes have spoiled me. Right. Yeah. You know, us snake people get really lazy and then we realize it. Especially like uh, I talked to Brett Bender at the at this last Arlington and he's got Kimberly Rock monitors. I'm like, I really want a Kimberly Rock monitor. And I was like, shit, that thing eats way more often. And like, I have to spend time with it and take care of it more often. I can't just like leave for a week at a time and be like, yeah, it'll be all right. So I get spoiled by by my no-legged things that eat whenever I feel like feeding them. <laughs> or like my rubber boas, which I can just throw in the freezer for three months. And be like, fuck it, they'll be fine. All right. That's all I got. I'm just rambling now about snakes because I got to go take care of snakes. But I'm just trying <laughs> to stay here so I don't have to go do that. But that's it, Jason. If people want to talk to you. Uh, toplineconstrictors at gmail.com or on Facebook. Yeah, don't Top try and don't try and talk to him over like a video chat. That's not going to go well. Yeah, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we can figure it out more next time. Joy's the technology. That's why. I, it's every time. I don't. I don't get it. And like it was a, a while for us. We were having that issue. And I'm like, I pay way too much in internet for that to have that issue. But just like Jason now pays way too much in internet to have that issue. You know what, Jason will fix yeah. that. Move to Texas. Then I can just come over and sit next See, to you, right? You can just come sit right here next to <laughs> me. It'd be great. <laughs> Travis, if people want to get a hold of you, and go ahead and give me your email. A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I at Gmail. I love how uh, didn't even pronounce it that time. You were just like, let me go ahead and spell it. In case anybody's wondering, it's a weird-ass plant. It's a plant. Yes, it's, it's a carnivorous plant. Um, <laughs> You can also find me, Travis Wyman, on Facebook. I am not the motocross racer or snakes underscore N underscore bakes on Instagram. Or go to Morph Market. He's, you can find him on Morph Market boards. Or go on Morph Market. Yes, you yeah. can find me on the boards there, T.H. Wyman. Yeah, because he's, he's a fancy person that works for Morph Market now. Give, give me a deal. Can you give me a discount code on Morph Market? No, I I, I don't really work at Morph Market so much as I I kind of help with you know some of the back end stuff and and upsetting people on the message boards. Uh, yeah, that happens too. You know, I for lack of a better term, I'm I'm kind of like a, a beta person there. You know, John talks with me about ideas that he has. You know, and there's a bunch of us that are in these groups. You know, ideas that he has for rolling out. So like you know the new uh nfs module that he just released that's something we've been talking about for probably the better part of a year you know how it would go well how we want to set it up what kind of things we want in there and you know each successive iteration so what does that allow people to do i've seen that pop up and i just you know me i'm not going to read everything (sighs) so here give me one minute um i know that's the most annoying thing to see on uh at shows, when you walk by, you're going to see NFS on containers, and you're going to hate it because that's going to be the one thing you want. 
And it's not for sale. I say it's not for sale. It's not for sale for the average person. It's for sale for the person with the right pocketbook. So, can you see my screen? Uh, no, because you got to share it. I did share it. You did not share it. It has not popped up for you to share. You lie. I told it to share my screen. See, it's not just me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I can't. I cannot see it. I'm trying, but it's not there. Okay, well, Travis I don't know what lies. On. This is why people don't share like Travis. He lies. Share window, share morph market, share. Yep. The room has lost permission to share. Well, oh, that's weird. so if you go onto morph market, in the upper right, there's a, set, a little tab that says animals next to your name in the little envelope where you get your thing. And if you click on that, You'll have for sale, on hold, NFS, collections, sold, and all. The NSF is basically you can put any animal that you have in there and you can make it viewable to the public. And this, these are the animals that are, you know, your breeders, your holdbacks, your things that, you know, you keep but don't breed. So it lets other people see what you have. Gotcha. You know, and that way, like, you know, for the animals that I have for sale, um, you know, like I will have oftentimes the pairing that went with them. So then if a person was interested, they could go and look at my NFS and find the pairing, which has got the names of the parents and see what the parents look like. And eventually John is going to work it so that you can have, um, you know, like lineage charts that you can compile together that will link to your ad. Um, there are, you know, you can shift things from, you know, if I sell something to somebody, they can take my for sale ad and they can shift it to their collection page then. Huh. So So you can find out that person that bought the animal you wanted and then hate them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of a way to help make the system more dynamic for everybody. So we were talking earlier about captive versus um, wild-caught stuff. So if someone is doing captive bred uh, dart frogs or captive bred glass frogs, would be a great place to post pictures of the breeding setups and stuff to prove, go, look, this is these are captive bred, this is what I'm doing, and give people an idea of that. Yeah. That'd be cool. I'll have to check it out. All right, Zach, if people want to get a hold of you and bug you about glass frogs or dart frogs or blood pythons or boas or any other menagerie of things that you own, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at equatorial underscore ecosystems. Uh, the same thing on Facebook. I also do have a website that's, I need to find time to update at equatorial dash ecosystems.com. And it's E Q U A T O R I A L underscore. E-C-O-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S. I found it. I'm now following it. That's a fun little logo. I'm always interested in people's logos. That looks, it's a very, I like that. It's a very professional looking logo. It looks like a, a large like company. Yeah, I had a friend who's really good in graphic design, but he just kind of taught himself. I sketched it up and said, make something like this. And he did a really good job. And at one time, that represented kind of what I kept, but 
that's kind of why I came up with the name Equatorial Ecosystems because I couldn't focus on a certain thing. So that kind of catches the the tropics from around the world. Oh, you got the funny, I was looking at some of your stuff. You got the fun little geckos that run around like crazy. What are those, the day geckos? Oh, all geckos? Oh, oh. <laughs> no, no, no. These are the ones that like, whenever you try to look at them, they'll run around to the other side of the bamboo and you're like. Oh, the electric see. blues? But these are different. These are. Yeah, I keep Clemeri and William's Eye, which are two small. Um, Clemeri are a Felsuma from Madagascar and William's Eye are uh, a somewhat related genus from Tanzania. And now I'm just Facebook, our Instagram stalking what you have. You have blood pythons, which I can't do blood pythons. That's, that's too much snake in a small, I say small package, but it's a very compact package of stuff that's going to bite me if I upset it. I, I still live Most in the- Most of mine are nice though. I still, well, I still live in the history of like, all blood pythons are evil. So like my mind's like, when I got into the hobby, they were all bad. And now they're like the same as like retics. Retics were all bad when I got into the hobby. And now you see people with like puppy dog retics. And I see blood. Like my, my, my friend April, she's got bloods that she can hold and they're great. I'm just like, still my mind can't get over. Like, man, that would really fucking hurt if it bit me. Yeah, I have one that I have to like glove up and get out the big hook to, <laughs> just to get it out to clean it. But the rest of them, you just reach in. As long as you know how to hold them, they don't even hiss. Yeah, they're not a they're not a snake that holds on. No, they. It's kind of like giant loaf. Yeah, it's kind of like sand boas. I, I mean, my sand boas, they, they don't hold. You have to support their weight. They they're not going to hold on to anything. But all right, we went on here long enough. It's time for me to go. It's time for y'all to go. It's time for Jason to feed that hamster that's running his internet. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe next maybe next time we'll get a gerbil. It'll move a little faster. Something right. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, that's a good-looking Pearl Island bow on your web on your Facebook page. Thank you. I, I picked those up late last Pearl year. Pearl Island smooth right now. Is that, nice. Oh, that is cool. nice. Yeah, that's a good one. I do. I'm really hoping for a nice litter. My last one was really small, so hope I only got one. Well, one surviving live out of them, but I got another pair, a second pair together this year that I'm hoping for some really good ones. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're. I like the natural reduced pattern and and they just kind of have a cool story too just any of those the the island boas are interesting a lot of them are interesting because of the way they feed they talk about is it the pearl islands one of them that just feeds like once a year when like birds come through that's like the caulker k's i believe yeah 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 yeah. like they they, in the wild they feed one time a year when birds come through migrations it's amazing twice when they they go north and when they come south and then the rest of the year they just sit there like we don't have any food so we're not gonna get that big so that's that's also just really interesting just ecological stuff that happens uh that doesn't happen in captivity that we just constantly feed things in captivity and we don't think about how they're actually eating in the wild which is why you'll end up seeing them way bigger and and dying when they're like nine i didn't that's one thing i didn't talk about how long do glass frogs live that was i saw like you know the internet says 14 years but i don't know how long would a glass frog live um i mean i still have some that are they're probably six years old now. I would say at least to 10. I mean, there's dart frogs that are 25 years old. So um, I would say at least double digits, but I don't know that it's really known because none of the ones that are here have, been here have really time. been here. Yeah. I mean, the, the batch that ABG let out, I don't know exactly how long those made it. I saw 
Ian had some really old ones when I first met him in like 2011, 12. Um, and they died shortly after, but I think he'd had them for close to a decade. So that's one thing I've, people always talk about price when they, cause it's a small animal and they go, oh, it's a small animal. I'm not going to pay a hundred, 150 bucks for it. But I mean, it's a small animal. It's going to live 10 years. So, I mean, if your if your thought process is money, think of it in that term. That's one reason, like I've never bought a, uh, a panther chameleon. I'm like, that's a really cool chameleon for five 12 years. seconds. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I can't do that. That's then my, right. the part of my brain goes, I can't spend that kind of money on something that's only lived five years, which I know someone out there going, well, that's not the way to buy an animal. I get it. It's not the way for you to buy an animal, but it's, I have to rationalize it somehow in my head and the price they used to be versus how long they live just did not make sense in my head. So when you're talking about glass frog, a captive bred glass frog costs a hundred bucks. I mean, that's an animal you're going to have for 10 years if taken care of properly or more. Right. So I think a lot of people don't tend to think of that. And they also, I don't know how people really, uh, get attached to their frogs. I don't know. Do you, do you get attached to individual frogs? Do they have personalities or is it more of a, they just behave like frogs and you just know them or. Uh, there's some, some of my dark frogs, you know, they have sentimental value because of who they came from or, or, you know, what the circumstances were that I ended up with them. So some of that, yeah. I mean, some of the, as far as like individual glass frogs, you know, I have, eight Valeroy in a group and they all kind of look the same. So it's, it is kind of hard to, to, you know, I, I like them as a species. So, yeah. you know, you, you do right by them just in general, but as far as like an individual one, less so with those. Not just reaching in and booping them on the snoot and taking them everywhere with right. you. They don't, they, don't yeah, the, they don't ride around on my shoulder. They don't go to the grocery store with you. All right. All right, folks. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks, uh, and we'll talk about something else small. I don't know what we're going to talk about yet. We haven't we haven't figured that out, but there's a whole list of things I want to talk about. We can maybe just talk about calabars, even though we don't have anybody. To, we'll just Travis has the most calabars of anybody I know at this point. So, Travis, you're now the expert. <laughs> okay. With, with all leading authority. With all what three or four of them that you have now. Four. Four. Yeah, you're the expert. So, all right. Thanks, Zach, for coming on. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Jason. And goodbye.